This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks for a free downloadable copy in PDF form of this book. Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators, A Biblical Response to Ronald J. Sider by David Chilton, published by Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas, copyright 1981. Appendices, appendix number one. Deja Vu, a romp through Ronald Sider's second edition. Ronald Sider has revised his book, and this is a good thing. From the moment I first finished reading it, I said to myself, now here is a book that could do with considerable revision, not to say excision. It positively cries out for the stern, courageous editor with a discerning eye and a sharp scalpel. In a pinch, even a meat cleaver wielded by a blind butcher with St. Vitus's dance will do. But alas, all it got was Dr. Ronald Sider's own gentle ministrations. Name that critic. I must confess that the professor's new edition loses me at the outset. The back cover proclaims, In this revised and expanded edition, Sider updates the situation around the world and responds to many of his critics by reconsidering and reformulating his arguments. I know of at least ten authors who have written to refute Sider from various perspectives. Since we are told that Dr. Sider responds to many of his critics, it might be easier to count the critics he didn't respond to. Number one, P.T. Bauer. Number two, David Chilton. Number three, Constance Cumby. Four, John Jefferson Davis. Five, Brian Griffith. Six, Ronald Nash. Seven, Gary North. Eight, John Robbins. Nine, Frankie Schaefer. Ten, Herbert Schlossberg. It may have been just an oversight, but somehow or other, The professor neglected to answer any of these critics. True, he did mention two of them in his endnotes, Gary North and P.T. Bauer. He cites North as an example of of an Enlightenment economist reflecting a modern, secularized outlook. A statement which never fails to elicit peals of laughter from those who have actually read North's work. The only explanation I can think of for such an absurd remark outside of pure mindless slander is that North, unlike Sider, believes in the relationship of cause and effect in economic activity, a concept derived not from the Enlightenment, which has been rightly called the rise of modern paganism, but from the Bible. In fact, if Dr. Sider is seriously concerned about the economics of the Enlightenment, he would do well to consider the fact that it was the Enlightenment philosophers who most vigorously rejected the idea that the Bible provides blueprints for society. In truth, within Christian circles, there is no greater modern champion of the Enlightenment dogma of autonomous secularism than Dr. Ronald J. Sider. The other critic mentioned by Dr. Sider is Lord P.T. Bauer, of the London School of Economics. Dr. Sider does not answer Bauer's criticisms, of course, 
nor does he let the reader know that Bauer has criticized him, but he tells us in an end note that Bauer disregards history and argues instead that current economic inequalities are almost totally due to differences in ingenuity, effort, and resource redistribution rather than to historical misuses of political and economic power truly one of the most ridiculous sentences in all of Western literature. You would think that Yale University would teach its graduates to read books before they review them. To a great extent, Bauer's book is about historical misuses of political and economic power. Unfortunately for Sider, Bauer documents the misuses of power brought about by the very policies which Sider advocates. The main point to note here is that Dr. Sider does not answer any of the critics I have listed. But his book cover insists that he responds to many of his critics. Who are they? The only possible answer seems incredible. In his note to the second edition, page 5, the good professor lists seven friends who are economists who provided crucial critical reaction either to the first edition or to a preliminary draft of the second edition. In other words, the many critics answered by Sider are not those who have actually criticized his work in the public forum, in books, essays, and debates. No, his second edition is a response to private critiques by his own cozy coterie of friends who are economists, all seven of them, two of whom, according to his acknowledgments, had already given him extensive help in writing the first edition. Hmm. This intimate little society of like-minded academics is, I'm sure, very charming, but it is far from what is implied by the advertisement on the back cover of the book. The plain fact is this. Dr. Ronald J. Sider has failed to answer a single critic of his work. Why? It is possible, of course, that all public criticisms of the professor's doctrines are so completely superficial that they do not merit even a line of comment. If that were the case, it seems that Sider still could have gotten some good mileage out of that fact. For example, instead of covering up the very existence of my book, he could have stated that Chilton's nasty, sarcastic, and Mean-tempered work is so full of logical fallacies that it, that it refutes itself. It is so devoid of biblical content that it does not contain a shred of scriptural evidence against my position. I hereby invite my readers to study productive Christians closely to see for themselves that this book only strengthens my argument. Now, why didn't the professor say something like that? Maybe he just didn't want to hurt my feelings. The fact remains that Dr. Sider has failed to alert his readers to the numerous published criticisms of his position, leaving himself open to charges of cowardice and intellectual dishonesty. 
There may be another explanation for his conduct, but it escapes me. New and improved. This is not to disparage the very real accomplishments of the professor. While his second edition gives the occasional appearance of having been scissored up after working hours for a, by a frightened committee, it does bear evidence of some clear thinking applied to the problems of revision. Take, for example, the matter of exclamation points. One of the first improvements I noticed about the second edition is that most of the original exclamation points have been dropped in favor of the simple, serviceable, elegant period, where the first edition proclaimed, God displayed his power at the Exodus in order to free oppressed slaves! Exclamation point! Page 60. The new edition calmly states, God displayed his power at the Exodus in order to free oppressed slaves. Period. Page 54 which is a more dignified way of putting it. Speaking of the early Christians, Cider's first edition shouted, The joy and love exhibited in their common life was contagious! Exclamation point. Page 99. While the second edition meekly whispers, The joy and love exhibited in their common life was contagious. Page 89. The explanation for Sider's newly acquired reserve must lie, at least in part, in the fact that times have changed. The first edition was published in the heady early days of born-again Jimmy's glorious reign, when terrorists were being fed, coddled, and funded by the U.S. government, and indeed anything seemed possible to those who truly believed. For anyone to the left of Tip O'Neill, it was an exciting era. The Messiah from Plains, Georgia, the great peacemaker, was alive and well and living in Washington, D.C. The world was a veritable carnucopia, overflowing with Sandinistas and federal grants. But then came 1980, when the masses rose up in revolt against the elite wisdom, and the country rolled back to the dark ages of petty New Deal skinflintery. The cider of the 80s is thus an older, wiser, more subdued cider, a cider who wearily bears on his shoulders the weight of a world fallen from grace. The age of miracles has passed. Guilt manipulation is slipping out of vogue. The professor now speaks in the hollow, vacant tones of a man who has gazed into the future and found it to be ineffably dismal a place where it just isn't fun to be a New Age liberal anymore. Gone is his wanted luster and zip. Ichabod, Ichabod, he mutters. The professor's new modesty has extended to his choice of rhetoric as well. Readers of his first edition could positively wallow in pejoratives. It is because of this high level of meat consumption that the rich minority of the world devours such an unfair share of the world's available food. The final irony of this injustice is that our high meat consumption is harmful to our health. Exclamation point. Page 44. Readers of the second edition, however, are forced to endure an almost objective recital of facts. 
It is because of this high level of meat consumption that the rich minority of the world devours such an unequal share of the world's available food. The final irony is that our high meat consumption is harmful to our health. Period. <coughs> Page 35. One factor which might have contributed to Sider's rhetorical barrenness is the fact that between the two editions, the U.S. Department of Agriculture released a study called Consumer Demand for Red Meats, Poultry, and Fish. According to an Associated Press report, the USDA study found that low-income families consume more meat per capita than high-income families, and that blacks consume more than non-blacks. Oops. I can see the headline now, right? White theology prof accuses poor blacks of overconsumption. Faced with embarrassing data like that, Dr. Sider has every reason to write in a slightly lighter shade of purple. There are some revisions that must have been especially galling to make. In the original edition, Professor Sider was practically foaming at the mouth over our imminent doom at the hands of the nefarious population explosion. Remember those scary projections? The population explosion is another fundamental problem. By the year 2000, the world's population will have climbed to about 7 billion people. Oh! Page 18. That was back in 1977, but the 1984 cider, although still perspiring heavily, said this. The population explosion is another fundamental problem. By about the year 2000, the world's population will have climbed to approximately 6 billion people. Page 24 and following. Let's see, that's a loss of 1 billion people in just 7 years at this astonishing rate, by the time the professor publishes the Jubilee edition of his book, there won't be anybody left to buy it. Things are looking up, eh, Ron? As a matter of fact, to take the word of Dr. Sider himself, things are improving. Hmm. His first edition reported that the percentage of disposable income spent on food in the U.S. was 17% while in India it came to 67%, page 44. Seven years have passed, and Cider now gives us heartening news. In the United States, it is a mere 12.7%. Hmm. In India, it is 55.5%, page 35. The cost of food is dropping for both countries. You would think that Cider would make some comment about this encouraging progress, that he would draw attention to this startling difference between the two editions. But no, for some reason he sees fit to leave that detail out of his calculations. He neglects to mention that his own figures have changed drastically. He concentrates only on the discrepancy between the U.S. and India. There is a gap between the rich and the poor nations, the professor would assiduously remind us. And in defiance of his own statistics, he repeats his familiar refrain, the chasm widens every year. Page 37. Hmm. 
Actually, the overwhelming preponderance of data shows clearly that the professor's paranoia is without foundation. Dr. Sider cites deliberately misleading studies, for example, agitprop literature, such as the limits to growth in Global 2000. Each of them, nothing but a pack of, not to put too fine a point on it, inaccuracies. What, what he doesn't tell us is that in the last 70 years alone, we have gone from less than 1% of humanity being able to survive at any reasonable level of health and comfort to nearly half of humanity now surviving at a standard of living positively unimagined at the beginning of this century. In fact, economic analyses show that contrary to the doomsdayers, the real prices of virtually all major natural resources, both in terms of constant hours of effort and general commodity price levels, have steadily decreased for as long as there are reliable statistical records or more than two centuries. Economic history, in other words, puts the lie to these limits of growth notions. The plot thickens. Some statements made in the first edition were so embarrassing, of course, that they simply just had to be cut out entirely. Terms such as fair price and fair profits are nowhere to be found in the rewritten work. It is important to keep in mind that Sider never specifically repudiates his former pronouncements, but at least he does us the favor of not repeating them. Sider has created naughty problems for his loyal followers, however, as far as I can tell, only once in the new book does he admit that he has changed his mind and that and that, that is on an issue of only minimal debate. Hmm. Has the professor backed down for this other from his other positions? If so, why doesn't he tell us? If not, why does he delete his previous statements? What about all these people who believed or tried to act on the first edition. One place where this is crucial is where Sider talks about the Jubilee year. In the first edition, as we have seen, Sider asked if we should implement the Jubilee and answered, actually, it might not be a bad idea to try the Jubilee itself at least once. In 1980, all Christians worldwide would pool all their stocks, bonds, and income-producing property and redistribute them equally page 93 of the first edition. In the new edition, Sider asked the same question, should people today seek to apply the Jubilee Law? This time he answers, certainly not. The specific provisions of the year of Jubilee are not binding today. Hmm. Page 84. In line with this new position, Sider deletes his former statement about pooling our possessions in fulfillment of the Jubilee, although he doesn't tell his readers he has changed anything. Those who have noted the discrepancies, however, would naturally suppose that Sider really has changed his mind on this point. The professor seems to have mellowed considerably. He no longer claims that the Jubilee should be implemented today or that we should communize all income-producing property 
to fulfill its requirements, right? Yet in the new edition of his book, in a later section that has nothing to do with the Jubilee, Professor Sider informs us that, of all things, the Jubilee Law is the answer to the problems of the third world. Hmm. All the land should be communized, you see, because the Jubilee calls for redistribution of society's pool of productive assets. Page 147. Hmm. What do we think of all this? The professor erased that kind of language from his section specifically dealing with the Jubilee, but then reinserted it into a passage on the third world. So, has he changed his views, or hasn't he? If not, why did he delete his original statement about the Jubilee? If God's Jubilee law calls for the redistribution of society's pool of productive assets, shouldn't Christians still pool all their stocks, bonds, and income-producing property and businesses and redistribute them equally? And yet, on the authority of the professor himself, we can say that complete confidence that the Jubilee should, act, should certainly not be applied in this age, except for when it should be applied. One thing's for sure, if Dr. Sider deliberately set out to confuse his readers, it worked. Another strange new feature of the revised version shows up on pages 171 and 72 where the professor lays down six criteria to enable us to determine the kind of lifestyle we should pursue. As Dr. Sider hastens to point out, he offers these as suggestions, not as norms or laws, his emphasis. In his suggestions, however, he uses these words, need, ought, should, should not, wrong, sin. But these are not norms or laws, mind you. Far be it from Dr. Sider to presume the, to legislate our conduct. No, he is merely suggesting some good ideas. Keep in mind that even though you ought to obey them, even though you should not neglect them, for it would be wrong to do so, in spite of the fact that it is a sin to transgress them, these are not norms or laws, just suggestions. Is that clear? Then there is the pesky matter of the United Nations. On page 220 of his first edition, Dr. Sider called for the United Nations to be given the power of international taxation. A rather sweeping demand when you think about its implications. As I have pointed out, this would give the United Nations unprecedented totalitarian powers. Perhaps in response to this criticism, if I may so flatter myself, the professor has been good enough to revise and expand on this idea for the new edition. And sure enough, he took out the line about the United Nations. Now, he tells us, we could develop a modest international income tax on a sliding scale. We could levy a modest tax on international trade, arms production, and international travel. Such proposals 
are visionary in the current political climate of selfish nationalism. But they are in keeping with God's special concern for the poor and the biblical principle of the Jubilee. Page 219. Never mind about that frighteningly undefined word modest. Don't worry about how sliding scales always seem to slide up. Pay no attention to the fact that the professor regards anyone who doesn't want international taxation as a selfish nationalist. And let's forget about how that non-applicable jubilee law just bounced up again out of nowhere, hungrier than ever. What I'm trying to figure out is this. Who's going to collect the taxes? Surely not the United Nations. After all, Sider deleted this reference to the UN. If he had meant the UN, he could have left it in, but uh, he took the trouble to cut it out. Now a card-carrying Ph.D. from Yale should be able to figure out that any organization powerful enough to carry out a program of international taxation would be, in every practical sense, a one-world government. I'm just a teensy bit curious about who is going to be ruling the world once Dr. Sider is finished re-educating the rest of us. The International Institute of Coordinated Experiments, perhaps. This is no time to be coy, Professor. Ronald J. Sider, Defender of Capitalism. In another startling departure, apparently from previous positions, the professor treats us to a few new remarks which almost sound like an advocacy of freedom. God wants each family to have the resources to protect their own livelihood. In order to strengthen the family, in order to give people the freedom to be co-creators of history, and in order to prevent the centralization of power and totalitarianism that almost always accompanies centralized ownership of land or capital by either the state or small elites. Page 81. If you think that's interesting, wait until you read this one. Biblical principles by no means support a communist economic system. Biblical principles point in the direction of decentralized private ownership, which allows families to control their economic destiny. As stewards of the land and other economic resources that belong ultimately to God, they have the responsibility and privilege of earning their own way and sharing generously with others as they have need. This kind of decentralized economic system empowers all people to be co-creators with God. It also protects everyone against centralized economic power, as when the state owns the means of production or when small groups of elite control huge multinational corporations, which threatens freedom and promotes totalitarianism. Page 104. True, that's still not quite the way Ronald Reagan would have phrased it. Nevertheless, as we noted above, the cider of the 80s is older and wiser. He knows he can't pull the st same stuff he got away with when Smiling Jimmy, Jimmy, Smiling Jimmy was sashaying through the peanut patch with Joshua in Como and Sister Ruth was warming up the anxious seat with the porn again 
publisher of Hustler. No, these days are its de rigueur to furrow the brow every so often about the breakdown of the family. And with the Soviets embarrassing all their friends by acting like uncultivated bullies around the world, it has become necessary to denounce the excesses of totalitarianism at least once every hundred pages or so. This proves that your motives are right and that you care about human rights at least as much as the late Konstantin Chernenko did. It's also politic in these dark days of creeping capitalism to assert the basic values of thrift, responsibility, and earning your own way, a phrase tirelessly repeated throughout the professor's new edition. But wait, Professor Sider hasn't finished singing the praises of the unhampered market economy. In an endnote, which will be read by only about 10% of his readers, Sider makes his strongest statement yet. My own layman's hunch is that the right direction to grope for new solutions lies in some modification of the market economy and private ownership. It is clear, I think, that collective agriculture is a disaster. Even more important, centralizing the ownership of property and the means of production in the state leads to such centralized power that totalitarianism is almost guaranteed. At the same time, capitalist MNCs, multinational corporations, have also centralized power to such a degree that Political democracy is fundamentally threatened and workers have little participation in the decisions that affect their own lives. The Jubilee and other biblical material point in the direction of decentralized ownership, or better, stewardship under God, the only absolute owner. Farmers should normally own their own land. Hmm? Farmers should normally own their own land. Smaller businesses, enterprises, smaller business enterprises should be encouraged. Industrial workers should be able to participate in the decisions affecting their own lives. This can happen in a variety of ways, management, employee committees, cooperatives, and so on. In order for persons to be co-creators of history with God in responsible freedom, decentralized stewardship, of the Earth's resources, not highly centralized state or MNC ownership is necessary. Page 253. This is all or mostly very well and good, but perhaps the learned Dr. Sider will explain a few things to those of us who may have a little difficulty following his logic. How can he call for decentralization while advocating a one-world government. The confiscation of land by the government, the right of dictators to nationalize industries, and a state-enforced absolute economic equality. This is decentralization? The only possible explanation, short of downright lying or outright schizophrenia, must be that if Dr. Sider's all-powerful world government deems a private landowner or industrialist to be too centralized, it will send in the police to confiscate his property, decentralizing the owner. In terms of the actual policies he advocates, 
the professor does not want a less centralized state. He is out to destroy the totalitarianism of private property owners. After all this, Dr. Sider makes an amazing admission at the end of his new book. There are, of course, important fundamental questions that we have not discussed. Many Christians have sharply criticized capitalism, and some have called for democratic socialism. Others have articulately defended capitalism. Examination of this growing debate, however, would carry us beyond both the space limitations of this chapter and the author's competence. Hmm? Wait just a doggone minute here, Professor. You mean to spend 220 pages telling us we need state-enforced communizing of property and a system of international taxation and population control and health care and guaranteed incomes and price controls and production of quotas and consumption quotas and income ceilings and profit restrictions and food policies. And now you tell us that you don't want to discuss capitalism versus socialism? Why didn't you tell us that on page one? So we didn't have to bother reading the rest of your book. It gets even more confusing. After telling us that he isn't sure whether capitalism or socialism is right, in the very next paragraph, Dr. Sider reveals that he is sure he wants regular fundamental redistribution of the means for producing wealth. Page 221. And this, he says, is required by, guess what? The Jubilee. Now pay close attention to this. The professor has told us that he is opposed to the idea of centralizing the ownership of property and the means of production in the hands of the state. Page 253. But he also says that he wants the state to redistribute society's pool of productive assets, page 147, and the means for producing wealth, page 221. Apparently, this means that the state should not own the means of production, but should merely possess total control over the means of production, so that the directors of the society can tell the citizens what to do with their property. I don't know if the professor has heard the news yet, but that theory has already been tried. It's called fascism. The only difference is that Sider's brand, calling for a virtually complete economic equalization, is more severe than Hitler's or Mussolini's. (coughs) Perhaps Dr. Sider is under the impression that totalitarianism exists only when all property is technically owned by the state. We shall therefore turn to the definition stated in Joseph Schumpeter's classic study of the subject. Socialism is that organization of society in which the means of production are controlled and the decisions on how and what to produce and on who it is to get what are made by public authority instead of by privately owned and privately managed firms. On the other hand, it really does seem at times that Sider does not want a totalitarian state. The problem is this. How is the society going to be directed 
along Siderian lines without an omnipotent government or authority. How can we guarantee the implementation of Siderite justice, the fundamental regular redistribution of property, without getting up a Leviathan more powerful than ancient Rome or the Third Reich? This is the dilemma which confronted the socialist of the 19th century. If we abolish private property, that is, the individual's power to make decisions regarding the use of his own property, and if we then abolish the state, the coercive enforcing power, as well as who will make the decisions. Murray Rothbard explains, rejecting private property, especially capital, the left socialist were then trapped in an inner contradiction. If the state is to disappear after the revolution, immediately for Bakunin, gradually withering for Marx, then how is the collective to run its property without becoming an enormous state itself, in fact, even if not in name? This is the contradiction which neither the Marxist nor the Bakuninist were ever able to resolve. There is no evidence that Professor Sider will be able to resolve it either. There is, in fact, precious little evidence that he has even thought out the thought of the question. Yet it is a central problem in his system. At least the professor has made one important admission. Any discussion of capitalism versus socialism would be beyond the author's competence. That's exactly what I've been saying about him for years. It's gratifying to have my judgment confirmed by such an unimpeachable authority. But Dr. Sider shouldn't be telling us this. He should have told InterVarsity Press, who published his book. If they had known he was incompetent, to discuss economics, they might not have republished his book. No, I take that back. The important point here is that Dr. Sider feels perfectly free to blow up the economic system of Western civilization without offering anything concrete in its place. How are we supposed to make any sort of rational decision about Sider's position without knowing how or whether his system will even work? Will he have to wait until we wake up on the morning after the revolution to find out? It is fairly clear, given Sider's actual policy proposals, that he wants us to abolish the system of private property and free enterprise. He calls for the reform, uh, that is the destruction, of present economic structures, page 221. But then he fails, no, refuses, to set forth any alternatives. He will not provide a clear definition of the social order toward which he is working. He will not let anyone examine how his system will provide for the needs of the world, how it will bring about productivity and a rising standard of living. Incompetent? That's putting it mildly, Professor. Doing the Cider Shuffle Why is Cider so vague? Is he really so stupid that he doesn't understand that he is talking out of both sides of his mouth? I don't think so. 
After all, we must remember Sider's audience. He is addressing middle-class American Christians. To be more specific, the guilt-ridden college-age children of middle-class American Christians in order to gain wide support for his status programs. If he were scrupulously honest, if he were to advocate the outright revolutionary establishment of a totalitarian government, he would lose much of his following. So he seems to be to have chosen a deliberate ambiguity. It works like this. He drops hints. He implies. He asks leading questions. He quotes others who have taken a position similar to his own. But naturally, he cannot be held responsible for everything stated in the quotations. Only rarely does he make a concrete statement of his own about his standards and objectives, and even then, he's hard to pin down. This tactic is often used by Dr. Sider's comrades in the movement as well. For example, in June 1980, the other side devoted an issue to the agony of abortion. The title is misleading. It does not refer to the agony of the aborted, the unheard screams and cries of children from whom the once protective womb has become a chamber of horrors, the little bodies being mangled, chopped, suctioned, choked, scalded, poisoned, the final futile reaching out to a mother turned murderess. No. The other side was concerned only with the agony suffered by parents who have made the hard, costly, but liberating decision to butcher their babies. One of the articles, entitled How I Faced Reality, told the story of an understandably anonymous woman who chose to sacrifice her child on the altar of convenience. Instead of going on to new challenges in my work, I would be trapped at home with a baby. Naturally, as are most baby killers, she was very concerned with the fate of her child should he grow up to full term. The twin possibilities of messing up an innocent child's life and seeing our own lives permanently altered for the worse by something we hadn't planned on made abortion seem the only logical alternative. So rather than mess up the child's life, she compassionately snuffed it out. The self-justification that follows because of the agony, don't you know, would be laughable if it were not coming from a woman who hired a for-profit professional executioner. What would have happened if I had not had the abortion? My husband maintains that I would have miscarried from the sheer weight of emotional stress. I maintain that the two of us would no longer be together, that our relationship would have cracked under the strain. Of course, only God knows what might have been. But I like to think that our decision was one in favor of dominion, a decision based on responsibility and discipleship. Later, in response to numerous complaints, editor Mark Olson explained the other side's position. A significant number of readers have now canceled because of our issue on abortion, and many readers have been angry over what they now view as our wishy-washy or pro-abortion position. 
Actually, however, our issue was neither. We did not endorse abortion, nor did we present a neutral forum. We took a firm position calling abortion a question of moral ambiguity, requiring serious, honest, cautious struggle. That is not the lack of a position. We wish that were more widely understood. Hmm, I bet you do. Thus the editors are able to present evil under the guise of a forum for discussion. They do not officially endorse the material in their own publications. They are serving as propagandists as efficiently as any official advocate could do. But they can hide, the behi- they can hide behind their moral ambiguity while they do it. And as Olson says, ambiguity is emphatically not the lack of a position. It may not be calling darkness light, but it is saying that darkness is not necessarily dark. It is the ancient effective tactic of Satan, hath God said. One of the most difficult parts about writing productive Christians was that was the task of finding precise, pithy quotations from Cider to serve as introductions to the chapters in part one. I kept finding good summaries of his position that were awkward to use. They were either phrased as questions or else they were quotations from someone else. One brazen example occurs in his chapter on God and the poor, where the professor asks in big, bold letters, Is God a Marxist? And then follows it up with several pages about how the God of the Bible wreaks horrendous havoc on the rich. Does he ever answer the question? No. Can he be accused of saying God is a Marxist? Uh, Not exactly. But has he planted the seed of an idea that God is a Marxist, that God agrees with the envious, destructionist, Marxist philosophy about wealth? Yes, he does. And how... And that is how his whole book goes. The professor is indeed clever. He covers himself very well. He almost never states any specific standard or goal. He never really provides a blueprint, just a general theme in terms of the 1848 supplement. The same sort of ambiguity is evident in Cry Justice, Cider's annotated anthology of Bible quotations on poverty. I certainly have no quarrel with the scripture in the book, although the translations are occasionally sloppy. But Cider's notes and the tough, weighty study questions at the back of the book are masterpieces of innuendo and insinuation. Little is actually said, but by sneaking in through the basement, Cider manages to say quite a lot. I will repeat my statement from chapter 15. Sider states himself somewhat vaguely with respect to the specific political programs he prefers, the means employed to enforce them, and the limits of state power. He is vague about just how much personal wealth constitutes immoral wealth. But he is clear enough we need more compulsory wealth redistribution. We have too much wealth. Vague standards of righteousness coupled with emotional generalities can produce a lot of guilt. 
That, of course, is the whole point. Making War on the Poor Where Dr. Sider has been explicit enough for us to know what he is talking about, however, the urgent need for more social welfare legislation and funding, the importance of the further proliferation of rights and empowerment, and so on, and so on, the policy descriptions he favors have proven to be utterly disastrous in practice. A number of books have dealt with this subject from various perspectives. Martin Anderson's Welfare, Roger Freeman's The Growth of American Government, George Gilder's Wealth and Poverty, Henry Hazlitt's Man versus the Welfare State, Richard Morgan's Disabling America, Thomas Sowell's civil rights, and Walter Williams' The State Against Blacks, among many others. The most devastating of all, however, is Charles Murray's 1984 book aptly titled Losing Ground, a blockbuster expose of the destructive consequences of U.S. poverty programs after the Great Society reforms of the mid-1960s. When the U.S. government set out upon an ambitious program to, to end poverty by vastly increasing its expenditures on poverty programs. Murray reports, From 1965 to 1980, the federal government spent about the same amount on jobs programs in constant dollars as it spent on space exploration from 1958 through the first moon landing, an effort usually held up as the classic example of what the nation can accomplish if only it commits the necessary resources. The total expenditures on social welfare programs of the federal government alone have been over $100 billion, this is in 1980 dollars, each year since the late 1960s, over $200 billion annually since the mid-1970s. Who knows what that is today? And what has been the result of this unprecedented largesse on, part, on the part of the U.S. taxpayers? Murray states the clear, sobering fact. Progress against poverty stopped, coincidentally, with the implementation of the Great Society's social reforms. Huge increases in expenditures coincided with an end to progress. Losing Ground is one book which compels the reader to look at the charts and graphs, or rather to stare at them in horror. <coughs> Murray carefully and painstakingly piles up the evidence, documenting his case that American social welfare policy, particularly, particularly in its effects, on low-income blacks, has created a permanent slave class, destroying initiative, breaking up families, eroding self-respect, and contributing to both the moral and economic decline of the poor. Poverty has increased, not in spite of, but precisely because of, the war on poverty. One measure of decline used by Murray is the rate of labor force participation reflecting what Murray calls an active intention of working given the, op given the opportunity. 
What this means is that those who have dropped out of LFP, that is, the labor force participation, people working, are not people who are merely unemployed or looking unsuccessfully for work. Rather, LFP dropouts are people who have entirely given up hope or ambition of becoming part of the labor force. The statistics are shocking. In, 1980, in 1954, 85% of black males 16 years and older were participating in the labor force, a rate essentially equal to that of white males. Only four-tenths of a percentage point separated the two populations. Nor was this a new phenomenon. Black males had been participating in the labor force at rates as high or higher than white males back to the turn of the 20th century. This equivalence, one of the very few social or economic measures on which black males equaled whites in the 1950s, continued throughout the decade and into the early 1960s. Among members of both groups, LFP began to decline slowly in the mid-1950s, but the difference in rates was extremely small as late as 1965, barely more than a single percentage point distinguishing them. Beginning in 1966, black male LFP, men who are working, started to fall substantially faster than white LFP. By 1972, a gap of 5.9 percentage points had opened up between black males and white males. By 1976, the year the slide finally halted, the gap was 7.7 percentage points. To put it another way, from 1954 to 1965, the black reduction in LFP was 17 percentage point larger than for whites. From 1965 to 1976, it was 271 percent larger. This change was absolutely unprecedented, Murray says. Until this happened, we had never witnessed large-scale voluntary withdrawal from or failure to enlist in the labor market by able-bodied males. The tragedy of this decline in black men working is compounded by the fact that during the same period it was mirrored in almost every other aspect of black activity in American culture. For example, after steady improvement from the 1950s to the early 1960s, black schools and educational performance suddenly took a nosedive during the years of radical growth and proliferation of welfare programs, that is, after 1964, resulting in what is now an enormous gap between blacks and whites. During the same period, the number of criminals and victims soared rapidly, whereas the homicide rate among blacks had steadily dropped, between 1950 and 1960, it suddenly climbed sharply after 1964. 
At the same time, there was a rapid rise in both the number of illegitimate births among blacks and the number of black teenagers giving birth. In fact, it was precisely among the youth that the changes in attitudes and performance were most pronounced. Across the board in every area, the young behaved differently from everyone else. The black family had remained fairly stable for decades. But as the new generation grew up, the number of one-parent families among low-income blacks rose dramatically. Again, we must remember that sudden changes like these are utterly unprecedented in American history. And beginning in the mid-1960s, the changes all happened to the poor, and they happened all at once. The point is not simply that these declines took place during the same period. The crucial point is that Murray establishes beyond any reasonable doubt that these changes were caused by the welfare system. As he argues, when large numbers of people begin to behave differently from ways they behaved before, my first assumption is that they do so for good reason. The good reason being the changes in the incentive structure of American social policy. All the changes in the behavior of the poor could have been predicted, indeed in some instances were predicted, from the changes that social policy made in the rewards and penalties, carrots and sticks that govern human behavior. All were rational responses to changes in the rules of the game of surviving and getting ahead. In welfare, in the risk attached to crime, and in education, the rules of the game were radically altered during the 1960s. And these changes, which reinforced each other, had an enormous impact on the incentive structure facing the poor. The changes in the welfare system informed the poor that there was no longer any social stigma in becoming dependent upon aid. Indeed, it was right. It was a right. Personal responsibility was denied and all welfare recipients were equally deserving of lifelong support. In fact, the very concept of deserving poor was discarded. The poor became pauperized. Low-income males found that the financial rewards of dropping out of the labor force were superior to those of holding down a good job. Low-income women were faced with the plain economic fact that Living with a man out of wedlock and bearing illegitimate children, in effect, marrying the state, would guarantee a stable income. Many men and women chose these avenues. They were the paths of least resistance. In the area of crime, the risk of arrest, trial, and punishment, especially for the poor, and even more especially for poor youths, were considerably lowered it began to be perceived increasingly that crime does pay, as it was simultaneously perceived that honest labor is not as rewarding in its effect on either status or pocketbook. As the prospective benefits of criminal activity steadily outweighed the prospective cost, more and more people opted for the shortcuts. The traditional connections between behavior and results were obscured. 
In education, the same things happen. Sanctions against low academic performance and violence were dropped. Thus, a student who did not want to learn was much freer not to learn in 1970 than in 1960, and freer to disrupt the learning process for others. Facing no credible sanctions for not learning or possessing no tangible incentives to learn, large numbers of students did things they considered more fun and did not learn. What could have been more natural? What we have witnessed in America over the past 20 years is the systematic destruction of an entire class, the inescapable outcome of our social welfare policies. That is not to say that these results have been intentional on the part of the planners. What is, to, what is important is this. The results are just as certain as if they had been intentional. As far as its effects on poor blacks are concerned, civil rights and welfare policy in this country might as well, might as well have been determined by the Ku Klux Klan. Dr. Sider's second edition seeks to make much of the argument that the Bible often blames poverty on oppression. Page 53. I could not agree more, but what the professor has resolutely refused to acknowledge is that the degradation, impoverishment, and outright enslavement of millions in this country has primarily been caused by the oppressive policies of elite planners like himself. Truly the compassion of the wicked is cruel, Proverbs 12.10. And that includes the sincere but misguided compassion of those who seek to assist the poor by unbiblical and therefore wicked policies. Compassion, if not informed and ruled by biblical standards of justice and mercy, can become the cruelest form of oppression. Toward the end of his chilling study, Murray poses a question each of us should consider throughout thoughtfully. Let us suppose that you, a parent, could know that tomorrow your own child would be made an orphan. You have a choice. You may put your child with an extremely poor family, so poor that your child will be badly clothed and will indeed sometimes be hungry. But you also know that the parents have worked hard all their lives, will make sure your child goes to school and studies, and will teach your child that independence is a primary value. Or you may put your child with a family with parents who have never worked, who will be incapable of overseeing your child's education, but who have plenty of food and good clothes provided by them, by others. If the choice about where one would put one's child is as clear to you as it is to me, on what grounds does one justify support of a system that, indirectly but without doubt, makes the other choice for other children? The answer that what we really want is a world where that choice is not forced upon us is no answer at all. We have tried to have it that way. We failed. Everything we know about why we failed tells us that more of the same will not make the di dilemma go away. 
Murray's powerful arguments and solid documentation cannot simply be shrugged off. His work is causing paradigm shifts everywhere. Even the New Republic, which certainly possesses respectable leftist credentials, was forced to acknowledge that Murray has dealt a death blow to the standard liberal assumptions about welfare. Late in 1984, the magazine published a review of both Murray's book and socialist Michael Harrington's latest plea for massive increases in social welfare spending. While the reviewer could not quite bring himself to admit that Murray had won the argument hands down, he did conclude that Murray's findings had rendered Harrington's arguments completely untenable. Where I come from, we call that winning an argument. This was followed up a month later with an article by Murray himself entitled Affirmative Racism, in which he argued that government-mandated preferential treatment for minorities creates racism and unjust discrimination, not a view we are used to reading in the pages of the New Republic. The old liberal welfare system is dead in the water. Some were beginning to admit it. Virtually everybody knows it. Everybody, that is, that is, except Ronald Sider and company, who continue to march on blissfully unaware, not only that they have no clothes, but that the entire parade has made a right turn a few blocks back. No one is watching them anymore. I wish to issue a challenge at this point. Dr. Sider is obviously unwilling to take on his critics in print. He shows no sign of either the ability or the inclination to deal with a massive amount of biblical material on the issues he has raised. Fine. I am willing to forego my personal desires for a published response to my extensive criticisms of his work. <coughs> we can ignore for the present Sider's shabbily deceptive claims that he has answered many of his critics. And we can even overlook his dubious claim to be a biblical scholar in the light of his refusal to interact with the Bible's own laws regarding charity. But if Sider is really serious about alleviating poverty, I simply propose that he answer in painstaking detail every single line of Charles Murray's work. Because if Murray is correct, even if he is half right, the implication for social policy are nothing less than cataclysmic. It means that if we really wish to help the poor, as opposed to mouthing off platitudes in order to gain power and influence over the guilt-ridden, the standard liberal welfare system will have to be scrapped. If Cider is to be taken seriously, he will have to deal with Murray. Dr. Sider, I challenge you, I dare you, to respond to losing ground. Moreover, I submit two things. First, I submit that neither Dr. Sider nor anyone in his camp, including his economist friends, possess the sheer competence for the challenge I have posed. Second, I submit that Dr. Sider is a chicken. He won't even try. Look who's defending the privileged elite. In the new edition of Rich Christians, Dr. Sider has added a section on the evils of colonialism. The notion that colonialism is the major cause of world poverty 
was popularized by V.I. Lennon, and his disciples have faithfully repeated it ever since. We might think, therefore, that Cider has nothing new to say. On the contrary, however, the professor has provided information in this section which is not only new, it is startling. It is downright flabbergasting. It is information which we are not likely ever to read anywhere else. To set us up for what is perhaps his most astonishing passage to date, Cider says this, One quarter of the world's people wallow in the mire of deep poverty. Forty thousand children die each day of malnutrition and related diseases. One billion people have annual incomes of less than fifty dollars a year. How did he get how did we get into this situation? Page one twenty four. Let's just hold it right there. What on earth can the professor be babbling about? How did we get into this situation? Is Dr. Sider seriously suggesting that all these millions and millions of third world people used to be rich? And that somehow they got into poverty? Does he mean that all those people had annual incomes of far more than $50 until somebody took it away from them? As a matter of fact, that is exactly what what he is saying. And guess who got those formerly affluent countries into poverty? The Western nations, of course. Wait a minute. Since the third world is so filthy rich, maybe God took it away from them. Isn't that the cider thesis? Or does the theory only apply to us white folks? The professor does deserve credit for telling us this gag with a straight face. It is now generally recognized by historians that the civilizations Europe discovered were not less developed or underdeveloped in any sense. Page 124. But forsooth, Dr. Ron believes this stuff. The places discovered by the European explorers, Columbus, Cabot, da Gama, Cabral, Ponce de Leon, Magellan, and others, were not less developed than Western Europe? This is generally recognized by historians. Yep, that's what Dr. Ron says, and he even has a footnote to prove it. He cites Goofy Gunnar Myrdal, the Swedish bozo who returns from his orbits around Neptune every once in a while to crank out another volume of Gossamer Balderdash. Cider was really impressed by what he calls Myrdal's Classic of Development Literature, Asian Drama. Contrary to the rapturous gushings of his wide-eyed camp followers, Murdahl is no historian. He is a a mountbank propagandist for the cause of international totalitarian socialism. And he has been belching out utopian hot air by the bagfuls for 40 years. Yet even Murdahl, at his fruitiest, doesn't claim that the development of Asia, Africa, and the Americas was equal in every sense to that of Europe. Sorry, Professor, I think you're on your own this time. What is incredible is not that the editorial staff of InterVarsity Press swallows this malarkey, 
Their gullibility has become proverbial in recent years. What is astonishing is that anyone else sits still for it. Really now, Professor, the lands discovered by Europe were not less developed or underdeveloped in any sense? Well, two sentences later, this is modified somewhat. In almost no sense were they underdeveloped. Page 125. Oh, so now it's almost no sense, is it? Careful, Professor. You're beginning to sound almost reasonable. Do we really need to refute this nonsense? Is it necessary to point out that people who ran around naked with bones in their noses, practiced cannibalism, incest, and human sacrifice, used Stone Age tools, practiced hunting and gathering and slash-and-burn agriculture, worshipped clay gods and real demons, and disfigured their women and children, were in almost every sense less developed than the Christian civilization of Western Europe? Earth the captain cider, check the oxygen level in your tanks. The real issue in the wealth versus poverty question, the thing which requires explanation, is not the existence of poverty. It is the existence of wealth. Where does wealth come from? Cider seems to think that wealth is natural and that poverty has been imposed on the third world by others. But that's exactly the reverse of the truth. It is poverty which exists in abundance. Poverty has been the condition of most people in the world for most human history. It is, in fact, amazingly easy to be poor. Any one of us could do it in a minute, eyes closed and hands behind his back. What is difficult is creating wealth. Increasing the productivity of the earth and raising the standard of living for the peoples of the world. As Adam Smith put it, when you have got a little, it is often easy to get more. The great difficulty is to get that little. In fact, economic productivity has very little to do with resources as such. There are millions of poor people in the third world who have access to cultivable cultivable land. Their low productivity primarily reflect, reflects want of ambition, energy, and skill, and not want of land and capital. Peter Drucker reminds us that no country is underdeveloped because it lacks resources. Underdevelopment is inability to obtain full performance from resources. Indeed, we should really be talking of countries of higher and lower productivity, rather than of developed or underdeveloped countries. In particularly, very few countries, Tibet and New Guinea, may be exceptions, lack capital. <clears throat> Developing countries have almost, by definition, more capital than they productively employ. Unfortunately, Dr. Sider doesn't seem the least bit interested in the subject of productivity. His book contains absolutely zero prescriptions for creating wealth or raising a culture's standard of living. Now, this is nothing less than astonishing. To have the effrontery to write a book which purports to speak to the issue of poverty and then to say nothing, nothing about how to create productivity and wealth 
is beyond absurdity. It is flat evil. In Rich Christians, both editions, Cider simply and simplistically assumes the existence of wealth. In his weird system, it is there, just like Mount Everest. He doesn't ask how it got there, apart from pontificating that it was stolen from the third world. You remember the third world, all those formerly wealthy and prosperous nations which were plundered by the West. The professor seems unable to even seems seems unable even to comprehend the kind of questions he should be asking, such as why Latin America has not achieved a rate of productivity to match that of North America, or why top-heavy bureaucratic socialistic societies inevitably have crippled economies, and why the institutions of private property and free enterprise have a historical tendency to go hand-in-hand with economic abundance. The only policy prescription Cider is able to devise are parasitic to the core. Obsessed with the wealth of others, all he can think of is how to take take it away from those who have it. He doesn't put it that crudely, of course. Instead, he he contents himself with fretting about distribution. If only he could distribute the wealth, or at least redistribute it, things would be ducky. Uh, for, For some reason I have yet to fathom, the professor imagines that commodities go through a two-stage process. First, they are produced. Then, when production is completed, they are distributed. Production, therefore, is a given. It just happens, and the wealth just lies there waiting for someone to pick it up. Kind of like the manna in the wilderness. All the government has to do is to jump in between the two stages before the goods are distributed and make sure that they are distributed equally. In reality, however, there there is only one process taking place. Ludwig von Mises writes, Goods are not first produced and then distributed. There is no such thing as an appropriation of portions out of a stock of ownerless goods. The products come into existence as somebody's property. If anyone wants to distribute them, one must first confiscate them. The process of wealth creation has been engagingly described by George Gilder in his book, The Spirit of Enterprise. Gilder convincingly argues that the growth of wealth has little to do with physical resources and statistical abstractions. Rather, it depends upon entrepreneurs, men and women who make their opportunities, who are developers, producers, innovators. It is they who chiefly create the wealth which the politicians posture and struggle. When the capitalists are thwarted, deflected, or dispossessed, The generals and politicians, the guerrilla chieftains, the socialist intellectuals are always amazed at how quickly the great physical means of production, the contested tokens of wealth and resources of nature, dissolve into so much scrap, ruined, concrete, snarled wire, and wilderness. The so-called means of production are impotent to generate wealth and progress without creative men of production the entrepreneurs. 
The key to growth, Gilder observed, is quite simple. Creative men with money. The cause of stagnation is similarly clear, depriving creative individuals of financial power. To revive the slumping nations of social democracy, the prime need is to reverse the policies of entrepreneurial euthanasia. Individuals must be allowed to accumulate disposable savings and wield them in the economies of the West. The crux is individual, not corporate or collective, wealth. Does this mean that the one who espouses the free market is simply a defender of the interest of the rich over against the other classes? Usually the very opposite is the case. The truth is, free market economists have more often than not found themselves at odds with the interest of the wealthy and powerful. This is because the wealthy often wish to maintain their position by using the coercive power of the state to hamper the innovative activity of the creative entrepreneurs below them. Adam Smith, the original consumer's advocate, observed, People of the same trade seldom meet together, even for merriment and diversion, but the conversation ends in a conspiracy against the public or in some contrivance to raise prices. As F.A. Hayek put it, the main task of those who believe in the basic principles of the capitalist system must frequently be to defend this system against the capitalist. The 18th century version of many of Ronald Sider's status theories and policies was known as mercantilism, a system that worked and still works in its modern forms to favor the interest of powerful elites. Adam Smith tells us who invented it. Hint, it wasn't the free market economist. It cannot be very difficult to determine who have been the contrivers of this whole mercantile system, not the consumers, we may believe, whose interest has been entirely neglected, but the producers, whose interest has been so carefully attended to and among this latter class, our merchants and manufacturers have been by far the principal architects. The great 20th century economist Ludwig von Mises emphatically agreed. The rich, the owners of the already operating plants, have no particular class interest in the maintenance of free competition. They are opposed to confiscation and expropriation of their fortunes, but their vested interests are rather in favor of measures preventing newcomers from challenging their position. Those fighting for free enterprise and free competition do not defend the interest of those rich today. They want a free hand left to unknown men who will be the entrepreneurs of tomorrow and whose ingenuity will make the life of the coming generations more agreeable. They want the way left open to further economic improvements. They are the spokesmen of material progress. In marked contrast to this is the position of Doc, Dr. Sider. By his opposition to the freedom and responsibility of individuals to administer their God-given wealth by advocating a socialistic system which requires totalitarian controls by a ruthless bureaucracy, 
He has championed the cause of elite planners and dictators against the masses. By constantly fomenting envy and resentment among producers against the creators of wealth, he is opposing a progressive, rising standard of living for the peoples of the world. To the extent that Ronald Sider's policies are followed, the evil rich will get richer by theft and extortion, and the poor will get poorer. The earth will become one grand Soviet empire, the real payload of his alleged compassion for the poor. John P. Roach offers some good advice for those who must deal with a Marxist-Leninist demagogue. Don't listen to what he says. Watch his hands. From Russia with Love To lend some credibility to his allegedly neutral position on the free market versus the controlled economy, Dr. Sider's revised version manages to make a few critical statements about the Soviets. Not to be sure without condemning capitalism in the same breath, but at least he does say that we should also vigorously condemn the repression, totalitarianism, and violation of human rights perpetrated by the Soviet Union in places like Afghanistan and Poland. Page 196, compare page 81. I begin to wonder if Sider has heard about that slight matter of Soviet oppression in places like Russia itself, and in places like wherever the Soviets and their protégés set foot, but I don't want to be picky. I'm just glad the professor has noticed that the Soviets are, in some places anyway, oppressive. But then I wonder, why is Dr. Sider actively pursuing policies which will, according to his own admission, bring the United States of America under the totalitarian domination of the Soviets. A little background will put this point in perspective. Productive Christians was originally published in 1981. In chapter 15, Preparing the Church for Slavery, I declared my opinion that Professor Sider's doctrine of guilt manipulation are preparing the way for the establishment of a totalitarian state. Of course, making prophecies like that can be a nerve-wracking experience. Once that cat is out of the bag, there was nothing I could do but sit on pins and needles waiting for Cider to get moving on, this, on the project. I'll say one thing for the guy. Give him an idea and he runs with it. He raced into print the following year with Nuclear Holocaust and Christian Hope, a book for Christian peacemakers published by InterVarsity Press, naturally, in which he and co-author Richard Taylor give their plan for achieving world peace. The strategy is known in military terms as defeat. Strangely, Sider does not use this precise terminology. Perhaps he considered it too technical. It's pretty simple, really. First, you disarm, totally disarm, and render the nation utterly defenseless. Then comes the fun part. We believe that such an action could be very could very likely result in a Soviet invasion. Page two seventy four. Sider and Taylor both attended Yale, so it didn't take long for them to figure that one out. Of course they didn't intend to take this lying down. 
they they've come up with what they call a civilian based defense okay you will think i'm making up the following quotation but i'm really not with cider and taylor writing great material like this who needs satire it works like this as the soviet troops land cider and taylor organize a non-violent blitzkrieg in which thousands of american citizens would assemble to meet the enemy's jumbo jets as they land here's the scenario straight from cider and taylor the landing would be peaceful no american artillery would fire no jets would strafe instead of american soldiers crouching behind tanks and pointing guns at them the invaders would see tens of thousands of unarmed people carrying signs with messages in the invaders language go home we won't harm you don't shoot we are your brothers and sisters your life is precious you are a child of god like the czechs hungarians and east germans during the russian invasion of those countries americans would climb up on tanks and try to talk to soldiers why have you come why are you invading a peaceful nation that is not threatening you loudspeakers would explain that the troops are welcome as tourists but will be opposed as invaders if members of the crowd were not able to keep discipline and started to threaten the soldiers special us peacekeeping teams would move in nonviolently to restrain the persons who were losing ground Moral Majority's Cal Thomas remarked to me that such a defense strategy just might work. The Soviet soldiers could die laughing. If Sider and Taylor scare you, however, you should realize that they are just the Marshmallow Corps. Their language is quite mild compared with that of some of their associates in the liberation theology movement. Consider the Mexican University professor Jose Miranda author of Communism in the Bible, which is of necessity a very thin book, just like Konstantin Chernenko's little number on human rights under the Soviets. Not thin enough, though. Here are some quotes from Miranda. It is time to drop all these side issues and concentrate on the fundamental fact the Bible teaches communism. Communism is obligatory for Christians. The Ananias episode means... Pain of death for whoever betrays communism, Christianity's indispensable condition. No one can take the Bible seriously without concluding that according to it, the rich for being rich should be punished. All differentiating wealth is ill-gotten. Therefore, to be rich is to be unjust. Miranda goes on to argue that all the wealthy, those who have differentiating wealth, any possessions above the lowest common denominator, which means all members of society above the poverty level, are guilty indirectly but really of the murder of millions. Then citing the biblical commands for capital punishment for murderers, he calls for the mass execution of the wealthy at the hands of a mob. This is violence, and it is not only permitted, it is commanded by the one true God. The human community has to defend itself from its attackers. 
This is more than abstract Marxist economics. This is more than social welfare programs. This is a specific policy of revolution and tyranny. In the name of Jesus Christ, the advocates of liberation theology are preaching envy, theft, and mass extermination. Even Sider and Taylor admit that a likely result of their policies would be that hundreds of thousands, perhaps even millions, might die. Liberation theology is, to put, in the, put it in the clearest terms, a theology of mass murder. Let's get physical. Although Dr. Sider claims he isn't sure about the choice between capitalism and socialism, it is clear where his instincts lie. He wants government control over every area of economic activity, including economic activities such as a couple's decision about how many children they will have. As I have pointed out previously, this is to be expected. Every socialist or interventionist program must seek complete dominance over all aspects of human action. You cannot really control any factor in an economy unless you control all the factors. There's only enough room for one God, one agent of economic planning. In view of this, it is amusing almost to read Sider's pleas for nonviolence. His own policies of comprehensive status planning and control require all sorts of violent intrusions upon liberty. They require armed men to enforce the expropriation of property. They must lead to bloodshed, or at least the threat of it. To claim to be a pacifist while working for the establishment of tyranny is simply a lie. On the other hand, if Dr. Sider is truly incompetent, perhaps he just doesn't realize what he is saying. Regardless of the mental gyration Sider may be going through in order to camouflage his implicit advocacy of violence, his comrades in the Jubilee Fund are, are as always, more direct. As we have seen, during the brutal and bloody Sandinista Revolution in Nicaragua, the Jubilee Fund sent money to the murderous Marxist guerrillas, and the nonviolent Dr. Sider, a founding member, just maybe didn't notice that. Their magazine, The Other Side, represented the revolution as a struggle for justice between evangelical Christians and an oppressive dictatorship. One of its writers obviously tickled at the opportunity to interview two Sandinista leaders, posed tough, radically biblical questions such as, What makes a good poet? And when the revolution was over, this important publication on the cutting edge of social justice gushed, Spring has come to Nicaragua. Those who were murdered and raped with the help of the Jubilee Fund might have phrased it differently, of course. Some people never understand. Then came El Salvador. Not that there's any substance to the domino theory, mind you. And again, the other side was there to help the Ministry of Propaganda. One writer admitted that El Salvador does have some armed organizations which are Marxist in character. He claimed, however, that the Marxists have accommodated their efforts and their program to the will of the people. Right. Naturally, but as Chairman Mao said, 
we must first be clear on who is meant by the people. He explained, The classes, strata, and social groups which favor, support, and work for the cause of socialist construction all come within the category of the people. While the special forces, the social forces and groups which resist the socialist revolution and are hostile to or sabotage socialist construction are all enemies of the people. It's not difficult at all for communists to accommodate their program to the will of the people because they decide who the people are. Those who oppose socialism just aren't people. The same writer for the other side went on to warn his readers never to use the term terrorism when describing the actions of the revolutionaries because they are resistance forces, so whatever they do, it isn't terror. A Presbyterian minister argued similarly in Sojourners. Violence in the scriptures is not what someone does to try to defend the oppressed poor from the injustices that threaten their lives. Rather, violence in the Bible refers to what the oppressed poor suffer at the hands of their wealthy oppressors. This may provide a clue about what Sider means when he says he's against violence. Violence is only what the upper classes do to the lower classes. What the lower classes do may be violent, but it's not violence. The essential point to be grasped on this issue is the central fact that Dr. Sider's appeal for charity and equality call for action by the state. That means coercion, the use of force. And that means guns, handcuffs, prisons, firing squads, and all the rest. As Paul Johnson has well observed, the destructive capacity of the individual, however vicious, is small. Of the state, however well-intentioned, almost limitless. Socialism is inseparable from violence. Regardless of all their professions of peaceful intent, socialists everywhere have had to resort to the use of violence to bring about their goals. They cannot do otherwise. The very nature of socialism, that the state shall be empowered to regulate people's activities and confiscate people's property, demands violent activity. The success of any socialistic land reform program depends on only one thing, which side has more firepower. If Dr. Sider truly wished for a nonviolent revolution, he would limit himself to exhorting wealthy citizens to give away their possessions, leaving it up to their own discretion as to how fully they will comply with his request. But the professor has not so limited himself. He has called repeatedly for legislation of his demands. That brings in the state. And the only reason for bringing in the state is that the state has a legal monopoly on coercion and violence. The state has more firepower. Sider's program of the gentle nudge is merely a temporary expedient. His goal inescapably is armed force. It is thus no accident, no oversight, that the professor's associates in the Jubilee Fund are using charity money to finance bloodthirsty terrorists. 
In his new edition, Dr. Sider objects to this accusation. To argue that Christians should work politically to change these those aspects of our economic structures that are unjust is not to call for a violent revolution that would forcibly impose a centralized status society. I believe that the way of Jesus is that is the way of nonviolent love, even for enemies. I therefore reject the use of lethal violence. The exercise of political influence in a democratic society, of course, involves the use of non-lethal pressure or force. When we legislate penalties for drunken driving or speeding, we use an appropriate kind of non-lethal force. The same is true when we pass legislation that changes foreign policies toward poor nations, makes trade patterns more just, restricts the oppressive policies of multinational corporations, or increases foreign economic aid. In a democratic society, of course, such changes can occur only if a majority freely agree or at least quietly acquiesce. Page 195. This is apparently what passes for deep thought among graduate students at Yale. I wonder if anyone in Sider's limited experience has ever asked the obvious question, what happens when the drunk driver or speeder doesn't quietly acquiesce? What happens when the heroin dealer, child murderer, rapist, or filthy capitalist pig, as the case may be, utterly refuses to accept whatever penalty the democratic society deems appropriate? What if he forcibly resists the police officer? What if he uses a weapon? At some point the line will be crossed and the enforcer of justice will have to set his face like a flint and get lethal. Lethal force is the absolutely inescapable foundation for any use of non-lethal force. Perhaps this is not true in Dr. Sider's utopian ideal society, where everyone meekly submits and follows orders and with the numbing assistance of soma drugs. But uh, in the real world, we have God's word which assigns to the state the power of the sword to be used in vengeance against true evil doers. Romans 13 verse 4. Indeed, the state is grounded in vengeance. Either the state will exercise the wrath of God against sin or it will exercise the wrath of man against God and his people. The fact is that Sider is determined to confiscate property and forcibly override the decisions of millions of people as his own policies require. He will have to use guns. For he may be sure of this, if the state doesn't have guns, somebody else will. At the very minimum, the state must be prepared to use lethal force against those who would illegitimately use it themselves. To put it in the simplest terms, all force implies the death penalty. If Sider wishes to use any force at all against property owners, he had better be prepared to go all the way. And if he tries it in Texas, he had better bring an army. Go ahead, Professor. Make my day out of the gun barrel. Socialism inescapably requires violence. All utopians are, by definition, coercive. As Paul Johnson's outstanding work, Modern Times, has painstakingly documented, 
The experience of the 20th century shows emphatically that utopianism is never far from gangsterism. In the first six months of 1918, the Cheka, Lenin's secret police, executed, according to its own official figures, only 22 prisoners. In the second half of the year, it carried out 6,000 executions. And in the whole of 1919, some 10,000. W.H. Chamberlain, the first historian of the revolution, who was an eyewitness, calculated that by the end of 1920, the Cheka had carried out over 50,000 death sentences. It is important to remember, too, that the Tsar's secret police, the Okhrana, had numbered 15,000, which made it by far the largest body of its kind in the Old World. By contrast, the Cheka, within three years of its establishment, had a strength of 250,000 full-time agents. Its activities were on a correspondingly ample scale. There is also the workers' paradise of the People's Republic of China to consider for edifying statistics. In a single year, the number of deaths as a result of Mao's Great Leap Forward policies came to 30 million people. Johnson's revealing characterization of V.I. Lenin could well be a description of Dr. Sider and many other coercive utopians. Lenin thought entirely in terms of control, not production. He thought that he thought that provided he got the system of control right with the Politburo taking all the key making all the key decisions the results would flow inevitably he was wholly ignorant of the process whereby wealth is created what he liked was were figures all his life he had an insatiable appetite for blue books one sometimes suspects that inside linen there was a bookkeeper of genius struggling to get out and bombard the world with ledgers. What we must always remember is that the state is not God. It cannot create out of nothing. All government can do is to divert resources from some uses into other uses. Governments do not wave magic wands. Instead, they point guns at the heads of their citizens in order to extort money out of them. According to some extraterrestrial logic, this tactic is supposed to result in an overabundance of blessings to the populace, the victims. But true economic development cannot be accomplished by state control. Again, this boils down to the fact that the state is not God and cannot possess the knowledge sufficient for exercising adequate control. Thus, state control is not what it attempts to be, it is just tyranny. There is no way of feeding into a computer either people's perceptions of their own preferences, faculties, opportunities, and prospects, or their likely reaction to changes in them, or the information and knowledge dispersed among the people who make up society. Only God can direct an economy. <clears throat> no dictator can possibly know or determine the individual choices, desires, and constantly changing taste and scales of value of millions of people. What we call the market is simply the most efficient and reliable means for those people to express their own choices. 
No one person or committee can possibly acquire the necessary data to control an economy. No one can possibly know what goods are, or how valuable they are, or how scarce they are. No one can know the constantly changing scales of value and need of millions of people. And no one can know in advance what some energetic young entrepreneur is about to introduce. Tomorrow's version of the ballpoint pen or the microchip, which will immediately throw today's calculations into the wastebasket. The only way this information can become known is through the undictated prices of the market order. Free competition is, in its essence, a discovery procedure. When people are free to express choices, the result is a market order with no one which no one has or could have organized. What F. A. Hayek, following Adam Ferguson, calls the results of human action but not of human design. One of the most crucial aspects of the market order, which a socialist economy can never provide, is its function as a transmitter of information. When the market is functioning freely without interference from gangsters or bureaucrats, its prices accurately reflect the real wants of the people. This gives entrepreneurs and producers the information they need to allocate resources in the most efficient manner in order to serve people's needs most effectively. On the other hand, when the market is hampered, the information is retarded and falsified. And if the market is abolished altogether, as in socialism, there is no information at all. The only way socialist economies can function is by keeping track of the pricing information made available by the free market order. The bureaucrats then use this information to set their own prices. Without the market order, socialism could not work at all. As Ludwig von Mises brilliantly demonstrated, a major curse of the socialist system is that economic calcula calculation is rendered impossible. Without the market system of profit and loss, the mechanism by which prices are determined through a multitude of individual economic decisions, there is absolutely no way to assess the economy. Where should energy and capital be channeled? How much do materials and products cost? Apart from the market, there is simply no way of calculating anything. If you don't believe this, try it. It cannot be done, and this argument by Mises has never been refuted since he first put it out in 1922. In fact, a society without market pricing and calculation is totally inconceivable. It cannot even be imagined which is one reason why no socialist society has ever achieved true socialism. The only thing socialism has ever been able to provide its adherents is the guaranteed income of Romans 6.23. P.T. Bauer asked this intriguing question. How would you rate the economic prospects of an Asian country which has very little land and only eroded hillsides at that, and which is indeed the most densely populated country in the world, whose population has grown rapidly both through natural increase and large-scale immigration, which imports all its oil and raw materials and even most of its water, 
whose government is not engaged in planning and operates no exchange controls or restrictions on capital exports and imports, and which is the only remaining Western colony of any significance. You would think that this country must be doomed unless it received large external donations. Or rather, you would have to believe that this, that if you went by what politicians of all parties, the United Nations and its affiliates, prominent economists and the quality press all say about less developed countries. This country, of course, is, of course, Hong Kong, which has become such a powerful center of industry that the great Western nations have erected trade barriers to protect their home industries from her imports. The lesson? Lack of natural resources, including land, has little or nothing to do with the poverty of individuals or of societies. The small size and low productivity of farms in such areas, less developed countries or LDCs, reflect not the shortage of land, but primarily the lack of ambition, enterprise, and skill. Land on its own is unproductive and yields nothing of value to mankind. It becomes productive as a result of ambition, perceptiveness, resourcefulness, and effort. These attributes and characteristics are present very unequally among different individuals, groups, and societies. In addition to the phenomenon of Hong Kong's transformation into a major industrial center, we could cite other examples of economies in LDCs which could not have been predicted. The rubber industry in Southeast Asia, for instance, or the cocoa industry in West Africa. What has made all these possible was not government planning. They came into being because many millions of people made choices and took advantage of opportunities to improve their economic conditions. And to make these choices, they did not need to know what everyone else was doing, nor did they need to exercise totalitarian control over the marketplace. They simply needed to know what opportunities were available to them. They simply needed freedom. And the responsibility which accompanies it, concepts which are understood by practically everyone except politicians, journalists, tenured professors, clergymen, and the editors of InterVarsity Press. Freedom is always more than bare economic freedom. Decentralized economic decision-making is closely related to other components of personal freedom, including expression of opinion and movements of people and their property. It is not accidental that these elements of freedom are to be found in market societies, not in closely controlled economies. A statement, a state-managed economy cannot help but inhibit freedoms in every area of life. The directives of bureaucrats increasingly replace the decisions of individuals in employment, residence, transportation, number of children, and countless other details of personal life. All these areas have an impact on economics. Thus, if one wishes to control economics, he must also control all these. And this means that everything in life suddenly has political significance. All of life becomes politicized. Sound familiar? When government keeps to its proper sphere, it normally is of only peripheral concern to the average person. But when life itself is politicized, 
government acquires enormous importance in people's lives. Every slight whim of the ruling class can conceivably have drastic effects upon the population. As Lenin understood, politics is always a question of who is doing what to whom. That means that the issue of whose party is in power is uppermost in people's minds. Their economic activity, and often their personal survival, can depend on that answer. And so instead of concentrating on productive endeavors, they shift their energy and resources to political activity. The struggle for political dominance takes the central position in national life. Sound familiar? This is precisely the reason why political contests in the third world become so bloody. Because of the pervasive state controls, political issues are often literally matters of life and death for millions of people. As Bauer points out, the third world cannot be understood apart from this most basic fact of human existence there, the, politis the politization of life. Toward the end of chapter 13, I cited Chairman Mao's famous dictum that political power grows out of a gun barrel. What is generally less well known is the revealing context of that statement, which shows what happens when near total politization is achieved. Mao said this, Every communist must grasp the truth. Political power grows out of the barrel of a gun. Our principle is that the party commands the gun, and the gun must never be allowed to control the party. Yet having guns, we can create party organizations as witness the powerful party organizations which the 8th Route Army has created in northern China. We can also create cadres, creator schools, create culture, create mass movements. Everything in Yunnan has been created by having guns. All things grow out of the barrel of a gun. Mao was correct. Without the market order, which leaves people free to make their own economic choices, everything grows out of the state's gun barrel. At every point in life, the individual is subjected to the authority of the state, a condition much appreciated by those who seek absolute power over others. With good reason, Bauer observes that the market order is a necessary condition of personal freedom. The statist order is merely a kleptocracy. Foreign what? In spite of numerous criticisms, the Vietnam program has been cited by both official and unofficial sources as a model for what American aid can achieve. The machinery of government was made more efficient and, for a time, more responsive to popular demands. Gradually, Diem's regime built up a degree of political consensus as well as a strong national army. The inflationary effects of a major defense effort were curbed and economic productivity was increased. Finally, a slow improvement in civil liberties took place 
in both urban and rural areas, although progress in this field did not completely fulfill American hopes. In each case, the means employed by the government itself were nourished by American funds or were adopted in response to American suggestions. Foreign aid has shown a usefulness and versatility that have earned it a distinctive and permanent place in the arsenal of peace. Ask most people what the third world is, and they will reply that it consists of the poor nations, as if the world were neatly and conveniently divided into two parts, one-third the western nations rich, and two-thirds the south poor. One problem with this picture is that, in fact, there is no clear discontinuity, no clear gap in the international range of incomes, which means that the line of division between the two global categories is arbitrary. It follows from this that the extent of the difference is also arbitrary. More than this, there is the fact that the nations of the third world are not one homogeneous aggregate of people with similar concerns and problems. The cultural differences among them can be as radical as their differences with the West. The third world includes millions of aborigines and pygmies, people with ancient and sophisticated cultures and other employing high, highly advanced methods of business and technology. It is both misleading and condescending to treat the richly varied humanity of the majority of mankind as if it were much of a muchness or an indifferentiated, uniform, stagnant mass, which furthermore could not emerge from this state without external donations. R. Emmett Tyrell outlines the evolution of the nomenclature. At first, there was the under, undeveloped world, which became the underdeveloped world, then the developing world, then the lesser developed world, then the South. No one really knew what to call it, probably because it had never really existed. What is the third world, then? There is one factor which does unite these nations, one common characteristic, which definitely marks them as part of the third world. This characteristic is not poverty, stagnation, exploitation, brotherhood, or skin color. It is the receipt of foreign aid. The concept of the third world and the policy of official aid are inseparable. The one would not exist without the other. The third world is merely a name for the collection of countries whose governments, with occasional and odd exceptions, demand and receive official aid from the West. Thus, the Third World is a political and not an economic concept. The Third World, or the South, is simply an entity for engaging in collective bargaining with the West. The purpose of the Third World, qua collectivity, is to coax or extract money from the West. Much of Lord Bower's research over the years has covered the disastrous, necessarily disastrous, effects that foreign aid has had on third world countries. As he shows, the use of the term aid 
to describe international transfers of funds considerably prejudges the issue. Perhaps the most crucial thing to remember about foreign aid is that it emphatically does not go to the pitiful, emaciated kids on the posters. Foreign aid goes to governments, period. This means that the actual function of aid is to increase the powers of government over the populace. Professor Sider in his ilk, to the contrary notwithstanding, propping up totalitarian dictators, is not by any means the same thing as helping the poor. In fact, foreign aid encourages recipient governments to pursue irresponsible and destructive policies in the certain knowledge that when things go wrong, the West will bail them out again. In terms of its alleged purpose, the alleviation of poverty, foreign aid is counterproductive since to support rulers on the basis of the poverty of their subjects does nothing to discourage policies of impoverishment. One rationale for aid has been that if we don't give it to the third world, the Soviets will. Thus, if we want to keep the third world out of the Soviet camp, we must send money to their governments. If this is true, then we should stop calling it aid and call it by its true name extortion payments. Let us, however, ignore that point for now. Let us also ignore the fact that the Soviet government itself has been able to survive only through the generosity of American taxpayers. Let us just concentrate on the logical errors of the proposition. The government-to-government transfer of tax receipts is not conducive to the development of a market-oriented society. Indeed, it is a denial of it. Moreover, it positively encourages the growth of statism and the politicization of life in recipient countries. Foreign aid simply turns the recipients into little Soviets. It should, not be a, it should not be a matter of much surprise that so many of our clients are hostile toward us. The extortion payments are not working. Over the past 20 years, some have recognized the inherent problems of government-to-government foreign aid and have advocated a so-called multinational aid instead, meaning that government-to-international-development-agency-to-government-foreign-aid. This, it, this, its proponents hope, will depoliticize it. Sider argues that the political misuse of food aid could be largely avoided if food assistance went through multilateral channels. But, as Bauer points out, the aid still comes out of taxpayers' pockets and thus cannot help being political to some degree. It is still the coercive transfer of funds from one group to another at the command of government officers. More than this, however, multinational aid simply substitutes political control by the international organizations for political control by the donor government over national aid. It still politicizes life among the recipients, for the money is still inescapably given to the governments. 
Multinational aid is non-political only in the sense that the recipient governments are even less accountable to the donors than they were previously. Both in public and private spending, the more distant the relationship between those who supply the funds and those who use them, the more likely it is that the funds will not be used effectively for the pursuit of their avowed purposes. In multinational aid, there is no contact at all between the donors, the taxpayers, and the spenders, the aid administrators, and recipient governments. Like other bureaucracies, multinational aid organizations and their staffs have two main goals in life. Spend the money and increase the budget. As much as two-thirds of an aid organization's budget will be spent on administrative cost. Thomas Sowell marvelously summarizes the situation. To be blunt, the poor are a gold mine. By the time they are studied, advised, experimented with, and administered to, the poor have helped many a middle-class liberal to attain affluence with government money. Bauer comments, As so often happens, people who set out to do good do very well. (coughs) East and West Much of the rhetoric defending the nonsense of liberation theology is based on the charge that traditional Christian thought, which holds to the priority of Scripture, is Western and thus one-sided and wrong. This is powerful stuff guaranteed to make guilt-ridden Western evangelicals squirm in their seats. Actually, they are quite right to feel guilty not for their Western heritage, but for failing to understand it and live up to it. Let's ask a daring, naughty little question at this point. What does Western mean? What made the West Western? Why isn't the East Western? What essentially is the difference? The answer, as any child in Sunday school should know, is that the West is Christian and the East is not. I do not mean that the West has been thoroughly Christianized or that the East is thoroughly pagan, but what has made the West Western in outlook, for instance, in its views of law, causation, linear history, and, for what it's worth, a relative absence of political tyranny, is... Christianity and only Christianity. What the liberationists of both hemispheres resent is Christianity and the abundant blessings which it has brought even in diluted forms. Which is to say that what the liberation theologians hate is God. In terms of this, it is the Christian West which receives the blame for third world poverty. Professor Sider and his guilt-distributing friends seem unable to comprehend the notion that any substantial blame lies with the East or the South or whatever. The degrading pagan philosophies which have rendered whole civilizations impotent in the face of nature, the rampant statism which inhibits productivity, penalizes accomplishment, and confiscates what little is produced. In some, the curse inheriting disobedience to God's clear revelation, the Bible. Romans one eighteen to 32 and Deuteronomy 28. 
While the new edition does contain two whole paragraphs acknowledging the influence of pagan worldviews and the importance of evangelism, pages 197 and following, Dr. Sider's basic message has not changed. The West, through both colonialism and commerce, is guilty of causing the poverty of the rest of the world. Hmm. Contrary to the ahistorical mumblings of the colonophobic Professor Sider, the fact is that con- contact with the West has brought pros- prosperity not only to former colonies in Africa, but also to other lands of the Third World, and some of the most benighted and poverty-ridden lands never fell under the colonial yoke. For instance, Afghanistan, Tibet, Nepal, Liberia, and Ethiopia. Some prosperous lands are colonies still, for instance, Hong Kong. And others, doubtless, would be infinitely better off were they returned to the Queen, the Kaiser, or whichever Western potentate would have them. The notion that the Third World's poverty exists because the West snatched up Third World resources is nonsense, reflecting the widely held myth that the prosperity of the few stems from the exploitation of the many. Some of the richest and most advanced countries of the world never had any third world colonies to exploit. For instance, Switzerland and the Scandinavian countries. Other rich and advanced countries were themselves colonies. For instance, those of North America and Australia. Moreover, most of the resources of such third world nations as Zaire and the oil countries would never have been of any value at all were it not for Western discoveries and Western enterprise. In some of the countries of the Third World, there would be far fewer resources had the West not actually brought them. The rubber trees of Malaysia did not originate anywhere in Asia, as the tree's botanical name suggests, Hevia brasilianus, nor did... Tea originate in India, Camilla sinensis. Both were introduced by the diabolical British. Before colonial rule in Ghana, there were no cocoa trees. When Dr. Nkrumu sent the imperialist packing, cocoa exports amounted to hundreds of thousands of tons, all produced from African-owned and operated farms. Soon these farms were nationalized by Nkrumah's socialist wand, and now they are in ruins. One hundred years ago, there there was no cocoa production in what is now Nigeria. There was no export of peanuts or cotton. Only small amounts of palm oil and palm kernels were produced. At the time of independence, Nigeria exported all this to a world market. Two decades later, Nigeria is a net importer of all these products, save cocoa. Other post-colonial countries have fared as badly. Western Exploitation How did liberation theology arise in Latin America? It is often represented by its spokesman as a homegrown movement, born out of the suffering, the struggles, and the innovative reflection and deliberation of the liberation theologians. 
In actual fact, liberation theology was a foreign import. Edward Norman writes that it is the foreign clergy, Roman Catholic, who are everywhere noted for their radical politics and who are most forthright in expressing them. Indeed, much of what is taken by Western Christians as characteristically Latin American Catholic thought turns out to be the influence of European and North American mission and staff priest. Apart from the foreign clergy themselves, the others most noticeable for their political radicalism are Latin Americans who have trained for the priesthood or studied abroad, especially at the European universities, particularly at Louvain in Belgium. There they picked up versions of Marxism from the bourgeois radical circles in which they mixed. This is an old, old story. The missions department of the seminary exporting revolution to the mission field. The anti-Western ideology is itself a product of the West. As Martin Bernal's Chinese Socialism documents, (coughs) socialist ideas were introduced to Chinese intellectuals by British and American missionaries during the 1890s. Christian missionaries are ultimately responsible for the tens of millions of Chinese massacred under communist domination. Similarly, as we have seen, the Sandinista Revolution in Nicaragua was often hailed and promoted by Christian organizations as a model of what liberation theology could produce at its best. With its terrorists supported by tithes and offerings from American Christians concerned for the poor, (coughs) the Sandinista regime set about to control the church and direct its policies. The result has been the confiscation of churches and the vicious persecution, torture, and murder of faithful Christians who will not worship Caesar. Liberation theology is a western, white, bourgeois ideology which certain Latin American demagogues have found useful for their envy-manipulating purposes. As Norman concludes, Western Christians who listen in to the Latin American church in the belief that this is the authentic voice of the third world hear only the echoes of their own voice. A central error of the liberationist ideologues is their cavalier disregard for the very real differences in economic performance among various ethnic and cultural groups in the third world. According to them, the only differences that exist are differences of result, stemming from the fact that the wealthy have gotten their unearned riches at the expense of the poor. Of course, there are indeed some outstanding instances of unearned income. But the socialists don't usually talk about them. The incomes derive predominantly from government-conferred privileges. Such privileges are especially significant and widespread in the extremely politicized societies of the Third World. (coughs) Their many forms include state subsidies, restrictions on competition, allocations of licenses, and privileged forms of employment. It is doubtful that these forms of privileged income 
or what Sider has in mind. Why did the socialists place so much emphasis on income differences? It is because their purpose is to arouse envy and resentment, soul-destroying sentiments liable to corrode people afflicted by them, Bauer says, echoing Solomon's warning that envy is the rottenness of the bones, Proverbs 14.30. Bauer has also noted the guilt manipulation which pervades the literature of liberation theology. Exponents of collective guilt rarely examine either the ground for their allegations or the results of the policies they propose. In the context of foreign aid, such allegations are most likely to lead to indiscriminate wealth transfers to third world governments and to various international organizations. The emphasis on guilt precludes close examination either of conditions in the recipient countries or of the conduct of the recipient governments. These considerations are pertinent, especially because guilt so often parades as compassion and is so readily confused with it. The exponents of guilt routinely exempt themselves from their accusations. They do not speak of mea culpa, but of nostra culpa or rather, vestra culpa. This is not accidental. Allegations of collective guilt go hand in hand with a decline in personal responsibility and the sense of personal sin. One of the most informed and sensitive Roman Catholic writers on liberation theology is James Shaw, the author of an impressive volume on the subject. Anyone wishing to pursue the subject in depth should definitely make use of Shaw's work, which contains several perceptive essays by other scholars as well. His basic thesis, cogently argued, is that liberation theology is in its essential outlines itself a cause of continued underdevelopment, and he warns that its eventual growth and success would institutionalize in Latin America a life of low-level socialist poverty enforced by a rigid party military discipline in control of economic enterprise and the movement of peoples. Characterized by inflammatory, envy-ridden rhetoric and wide-ranging ignorance about basic economic principles, he says, it bears a much closer resemblance to the excesses of the French Revolution than to anything in scripture or Christian tradition. Cleric watching is usually a depressing pastime. Increasingly, however, there are heartening and refreshing exceptions to the liberationist mania. One of these is the African bishop Monsignor Bernard Bududira of Burundi in Central Africa, whose excellent remarks in a recent essay are summed up by P.T. Bauer. Bishop Bududira's principal theme is that the local cultures in Africa and elsewhere in the third world obstruct material progress. The bishop insists that economic improvement of a person depends on the person himself, notably on his mental attitudes and especially on his attitude to work. 
Unquestioning acceptance of nature and its vagaries is widespread in Africa and elsewhere in the third world. Man sees himself not as making history, but as suffering it. The bishop concludes that the message of Christ frees people from the shackles of tribal thinking and leads to a greater sense of personal responsibility. The required changes can best be achieved by Christian groups working with local communities. Hmm. Comparing this biblical perspective with the essentially heretical views published in recent papal documents on social justice, <clears throat> Lord Bauer forthrightly states, The responsibility of a person for the consequences of his own actions and the fundamental distinction between mankind and the rest of creation are basic Christian tenets. They are pertinent to the issues raised by the Pope, but they are ignored throughout these documents. Their utopian, chialistic ideology, combined with an overriding preoccupation with income differences, is an amalgam of the ideas of millenarian sex and the extravagant claims of the early American advocates of foreign aid and of the messianic component of Marxism-Leninism. The End of Heresy The primary immediate theological source for liberation theology is to be found in the writings of the German Marxist theologian Jürgen Moltmann creator of the so-called theology of hope. Robert Walton's penetrating analysis of Moltmann's influence on the liberationist movement reveals a deeper source, however, in an occult theosophical tradition which goes back for centuries. He shows the numerous parallels between Moltmann's thought and that of the medieval heretics. For background on these movements, including the relationship of pacifistic socialism and mass murder, see Appendix 2, to follow. This should not come as a complete surprise. Friedrich Engels wrote a book about the bloodthirsty Thomas Munzer and his revolution pointing to the Anabaptist radicals and mass murderers as for foreigners of Marxism. As Martin Luther observed with regard to Munster, the tendency of all heretical movements is toward murder. If Cain had not resorted to bloodshed, he might have seduced the whole world and started a silly heresy, but God permitted him to fall into sin. The end of all heresy is the sword. Satan, as Paul said, can't deny himself. He must show himself to be a liar and a murderer. Moltmann's theology and ecclesiology are squarely in the heretical tradition and are essentially totalitarian and murderous. There is a direct line between Munzer to Moltmann, to Miranda, and to the rotting bodies of Mosquito Indians in the jungles of Nicaragua. The call for mass murder is not an aberration of certain extremists. It is central to the Christian socialist heritage. The end of all heresy is the sword. This is why the time for politeness is over. 
If this whole debate were merely an academic disputation over, say, certain details regarding the Christian use of wealth, we could approach it in the spirit of those benumbing articles which so delight subscribers to theological journals. But we are talking to murderers. Liberation theologians may look cute and harmless with their preoccupied looks and professorial elbow patches, their footnotes and qualifications, but they are advocating a reign of terror. It is not as if we are not sure of their meaning and intentions. The problem is not knowledge. The problem is the common unwillingness to perceive, to discern, to judge righteous judgment. The bottom line, whose blueprints? I began the first chapter of this book with a brief consideration of Cider's statements on the Bible's authority. That issue ultimately is the point of contention between us. Let us note again Cider's commendable remarks on this question. According to biblical faith, Yahweh is Lord of all things. He is the sovereign Lord of history. Economics is not a neutral secular sphere independent of his lordship. Economic activity, like every other area of life, should be subject to his will and revelation. Following biblical principles on justice in society is the only way to lasting peace and social harmony for all societies. Notice what the essence of theological liberalism is. It is allowing our thinking and living to be shaped by the surrounding society's views and values rather than by biblical revelation. Scripture, as always, is the norm. Unfortunately, these excellent remarks are accompanied, are accompanied by the assertion that when we ask specific questions about God's will for the economic sphere, the Bible does not directly answer those questions. We do not find a comprehensive blueprint for a new economic order in Scripture. Thus, even though God is the sovereign Lord of economics, even though economics should be, sub, should be subject to his revelation, even though biblical economic principles would provide lasting peace and social harmony, even though the scripture is the norm, there are no norms. God, who has promised all these wonderful blessings to those who obey him, has abandoned us without leaving so much as a blueprint. Where shall we turn? Indeed, that is precisely the question. As Eve discovered... If we declare that God's blueprints are insufficient or unavailable or just missing, we will find others who will be happy to accommodate us with forged blueprints of their own. Denying that any divine blueprints exist, Sider has allowed his own thinking and living to be shaped by the surrounding culture's views and values, as he himself phrases it so well. The professor is not alone. In 1984, InterVarsity Press published Wealth and Poverty, Four Christian Views of Economics, edited by Robert Klaus. The four views are free market capitalism in terms of biblical law defended by Gary North, the guided market system, a somewhat fascistic capitalism in which the government controls the free market, defended by William E. Deal. Decentralist Economics, a Retreatist Communalist Socialism, defended by Art Gish. 
and centralist economics, full-throttle statism, defended by John Gladwin. What is most noteworthy about this collection, which could have been subtitled Three Commie Wimps Meet Godzilla, is that Gary Norris' opponents, while disagreeing amongst themselves about which brand of socialism should be installed, are in complete agreement on one central issue. The Bible has no blueprints. Let them speak for themselves. Here's Deal. The fact that our scriptures can be used to support or condemn any economic philosophy suggests that the Bible is not intended to lay out an economic plan while which will apply to at all times and places. Page 87. There is no system which is inherently Christian in nature. Page 101. Gish. The Bible does not advocate one particular economic system for the world. Page 118. The Bible does not advocate any particular shape our economic life must take. Page 140. Gladwin. Scripture offers no blueprint for the form of modern government. Page 181. There is in Scripture no blueprint for the ideal state or the ideal economy. We cannot turn to chapters of the Bible and find in them a model to copy or a plan for building the ideal biblical state or national economy. Page 183. No blueprints. No blueprints. This is, a, this is quickly becoming the major refrain in the litany of the emerging socialist church. Recently, it has been chanted in monotone by a committee of the National Conference of Roman Catholic Bishops in their pastoral letter on Catholic, on Catholic social teaching and the U.S. economy. While the bishops state that the Bible should shape our vision in some vague, undefined way, they hasten to assure us that the Bible does not and cannot give us simple and direct answers to today's complex economic questions. Hmm, are they sure? Have they looked? There is no evidence that they have looked. Where then do the bishops get their blueprints, their standards for social policy? Too often, unfortunately, the bishops turn out to be leaning on the broken reed of pop socialism of the caliber chirped out by our current crop of intellectual magpies, a fact which gives them the appearance of being little more than the left wing of the Democratic Party gathered for prayer, as Peter Berger has aptly put it. The general approach of the socialist bishops is strikingly similar to that of their Protestant and Anabaptist colleagues. The bishops repeatedly disclaim a statist approach to economic life, yet when they come to specifics, it is mainly state action that they recommend. Moreover, they never ask the most important question, just how does a society move from poverty to affluence? Berger asked the pointed question of his own. There is a good reason to believe that the strategy to which the bishops are committed, committing the prestige of the church, may end in harming rather than helping the poor. Human lives are at stake. But what right, then, 
By what right then do these men appear before us, wrapped in the mantle of authority of prophets and popes, stretching back to ancient Israel, and dare to tell us that one set of highly precarious policy choices represents the will of God for our time? Exactly. By what right? More fundamentally, by what standard? Gary North writes, Always be suspicious of someone coming in the name of Christ who tells you that the Bible does not provide blueprints. You can be reasonably certain that you are about to be told that he has a new and improved interpretation of the topic under discussion, which is in accord with the ultimate concern of the Bible, or the overall sentiment of the Bible, or whatever the latest buzzwords are that people prefer to use, when they are trying to avoid a discussion of the explicit teaching of the Bible. It should be noted, of course, that the members of the self-appointed Lay Commission on Catholic Social Teaching and U.S. Economy, which produced a pro-capitalist response to the bishops, are no more interested in biblical blueprints than are their fathers in the faith. Right at the beginning of their document, they tell us that Christian scripture does not offer a programmatic guidance for the concrete institutions of political economy. And they go on approvingly to quote a scholar who declared that the economist should not theologize or moralize in his treatment of his subject matter or, what is worse, try to derive an economic system from Holy Scripture. Nobody seems willing to say exactly what is so terrible about deriving an economic system from Scripture. But all are agreed it's dangerous. The vice chairman of the Lay Commission, Michael Novak, is an influential scholar whose writings, especially in his more recent ones, have done much to educate Roman Catholics and Protestants alike about the workings of the market economy and the failures of socialism. Yet he too seems anxious to free himself from the Bible's oppressive authority. In his most well-known work on economics, Michael Novak discusses, with marked disapproval, what he calls the attempt to Christianize the system. Ours is a pluralistic society, Novak reminds us. Thus, any Bible-based unity of moral vision, any attempt to deal with social issues in terms of Christian values, is inappropriate. What he says next is nothing less than amazing. Daily life as Christians believe a contest with the world, the flesh, and the devil. An attempt to impose the kingdom of God upon this contest is dangerous not only to human liberty, but to Christianity itself and to any other religion similarly tempted. Hmm. I would think that the kingdom of God could be dangerous only to the world, the flesh, and the devil. What concept of human liberty is it that demands freedom from the rule of God? What shall we impose upon this contest if not the kingdom of God? Is there a more appropriate kingdom, Michael? Novak goes on to tell us that Christian symbols, that is, standards, ought not to be placed in the center of pluralistic society. 
They must not be out of reverence for the transcendent which others approach in other ways. Yes, but what about the fact that Christianity happens just to be true? Where did Novak's ought not or must not come from? Says who? How can any Christian have reverence for some transcendent something or other, that is, a false god, which others approach in other ways? Thou shalt have no other gods before me, the Lord thundered from Sinai, Exodus 20, verse 2. Let's face facts, comrades. God just doesn't like pluralism. He certainly did not encourage reverence for the transcendent golden calf. Exodus 32 are the transcendent gods of the Canaanites. Deuteronomy 7, 12, 13, 17. In fact, the Canaanites called transcendent God called abomination. Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 13. What Novak would rather not admit is that the moment he abandoned the Bible as the ultimate standard of truth, of right and wrong, of appropriateness, of human liberty, of transcendence, he chose something else as the standard. It is impossible to make any kind of moral judgments except in terms of a moral standard. Now why is it that men who call themselves Christians, who are baptized under oath into the holy name of the Trinity, are so fearful of following God's word in God's world. The Bible is clear. If we love God, we must love his law. We must obey his commandments. Deuteronomy 6, 4-6, John 14, verse 15 and 21, 1 John 5, verse 3. It is a question of ethics, not net financial worth, which is the overriding social and economic concern of the Bible. This is why we are inevitably drawn back to consider specifics of biblical law. This is why we must raise the question of blueprints. Get this down. The question is not, and never has been, one of blueprint or no blueprint. The question is always, whose blueprint? As the parable of Appendix 3 points out, there is always an architect, and he or he always has a blueprint. Professor Sider and his associates are merely applying for what they claim is a vacant job. All law is religious. All law is religious. Every law order, every society, every culture is founded on a blueprint, on some ultimate standard or set of values. And whatever is the source for that standard is the good, is the God of that system. This is why every society is a theocracy. A theocracy is inescapable. (coughs) The choice facing man is not and never has been whether or not to have a theocracy. The choice has always been which theocracy? Whose theocracy? God's or Satan's? Christ or Antichrist. (coughs) If a society is not explicitly Christian, it is simply a theocracy dedicated to the obedience of a false god. When God instructed Israel about going into the land of Canaan, he warned them not to adopt the law order of the pagans. I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan, 
where I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. Leviticus 18, 2 through 5. <clears throat> that is the only choice. Pagan law or biblical law. God specially, specifically forbids, God specifically forbids pluralism. God does not want to share the world with the devil. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Psalm 24 verse 1. To deny this, to deny the existence, relevance, and absolute authority of God's divine blueprint, the Bible, is the essence of secular humanism. It was the sin in the garden at the beginning, and the reason why capitalist and socialist alike reject Christian law order is so that they may be their own gods, drafting their own blueprints, determining their, for themselves what is good and evil. Herbert Schlossberg makes this acute observation. Western society, in turning away from the Christian faith, has turned to other things. This process is commonly called secularization. But, what, but that conveys only the negative aspect. The word connotes the turning away from the worship of God while ignoring the fact that something is being turned to in its place. This is why the Humanist Manifestos of 1933 and 1973 begin by rejecting the concept of divine blueprints for society. The authors are then free to draw up their own idolatrous plans for the recreation of the world in their own image. A glance at the practical recommendations of Humanist Manifesto 2 will reveal an amazing similarity to the socio-economic principles advocated by Ronald Sider and the Evangelical Socialist. The demands for government control of economics, for a guaranteed income, for statist welfare of all kinds, for a world community which transcends the limits of national sovereignty, for population control, for redistribution of wealth, and so on and so on are all the same. From a diabolical point of view, of course, the strategy couldn't be better. A Christian theology professor working in the evangelical community to implement the official program of the Humanist Manifesto. As Ernst Younger said, deserted altars are inhabited by demons. The purpose of denying the sovereignty of God is always in order to affirm the sovereignty of man. There is always an agenda. Rushduni has rightly pointed out that predestination is inevitable. The doctrine of predestination is, of course, the doctrine of total planning and control. To hold to the, to the eternal decree of God is to say simply that God from the beginning planned, predicted, and totally controls everything that comes to pass. The modern state, as the new God, seeks total control over man in order to speak an infallible word in order to experiment with man and control him from cradle to grave. Planning is thus increasingly a necessary part, aspect of the modern state. 
because the modern state wants to predict, to prophesy, to control. The goal is total planning in order to prophesy total control for total power. Infallibility is thus an inescapable concept. What we face today is not an abandonment of the doctrine of infallibility, but its transfer from God to man, from God's word to man's word. Lord Keynes, the atheist whose destructive status policies are the bare minimum demanded by the Christian socialist, described in an autobiographical essay how he and his friends rejected the blueprint of God's law and of all moral values which derive from, from it. We entirely repudiated a personal liability on us to obey general rules. We claim the right to judge every individual case on its own merits and the wisdom, experience, and self-control to do so successfully. This was a very important part of our faith violently and aggressively held, and for the outer world it was our most obvious and dangerous characteristic. We repudiated entirely customary morals, conventions, and traditional wisdom. We were, that is to say, in the strict sense of the term, immoralist. The consequences of being found out had, of course, to be considered for what they were worth. But we recognize no moral obligation on us, no inner sanction no to conform or to obey. Before heaven we claim to be our own judge in our own case. <clears throat> Lord Cain's rejection of biblical law spilled out of his sordid, sleazy personal life and created the modern world of sordid, sleazy economics. The rejection of God's absolutes does not mean the rejection of absolutes as such, but rather the substitution of rebellious man's immoral absolutes. It means that men will play God. It means that men will inevitably attempt to grasp for illegitimate powers over others. As Paul Johnson has written, all forms of moral relativism have an innate tendency to generate moral collapse since they eliminate any fixed anchorage and launch the ship of state on an ocean where there are no bearings at all. The denial of biblical absolutes means a blank check for the state and must inevitably result in statism. Lord Feverstone, one of the evil characters in C.S. Lewis's marvelously prophetic novel, The Hideous Strength, accurately summed up the basic alternatives facing the humanist. Man has got to take charge of man. That means, remember, that some men have got to take charge of the rest, which is another reason for cashing in on it as soon as one can. You and I want to be the people who do the taking charge, not the ones who are taken charge of, quite. Conclusion Where Ronald Sider's second edition isn't watered down, it sings the same old song. Man has got to take charge of man. While he has spruced up, while he has spruced up his terminology to some slight extent, trying not to sound frightening, he has made no fundamental changes in his basic message of guilt manipulation 
and the advocacy of totalitarian state controls. He has presented no evidence that his policies will work to alleviate poverty, or even that or even that they will not actually create more poverty and misery themselves. And he has not abandoned his commitment to confiscation and destruction, nor has he a single word about productivity and the development of resources. Most basic of all, he has not changed his position on the blueprints issue. God's holy word, according to Sider, still has no answers, no concrete ethical guidance for social policy. The anarchist socialist Pierre Joseph Proudhon was right. At the bottom of politics, one always finds theology. We can dispose of Ronald Sider at this point. By this time, I have refuted him several times over. Let me spend these last few lines concentrating on you, the reader. If you are concerned about the plight of the poor, what should you do about it? I am more convinced than ever before that mere poverty programs, no matter how well-funded or organized, will never, ever solve the problem. What is needed is productivity. We are to be, as my title suggests, productive Christians. This means faithfulness and diligence in our callings. It means training up our children to be responsible, honest, and hard-working. It means placing a high value on the spirit of enterprise, on the ability to imagine and bring about new opportunities to create increasing wealth. And above all, it means godliness following the blueprints. Wealth and productivity for all of society will come through God's blessing alone. He has promised an overwhelming abundance of blessings in every area of life for His obedient people. And we must seek his face. The lifting up of his countenance, as the biblical liturgy reminds us in Numbers six twenty four to 26 for the satisfaction of our needs. What about charity programs? These are certainly valid and necessary, assuming they are truly charitable and not coercive, that is, statist in nature. But again, we must be careful to follow the biblical standards for welfare. Many of Charles Murray's warnings about the damaging effects of undisciplined welfareism can apply to private programs as well as to governmental handouts. Those who wish to implement a biblically-based program of charity in a church, private association, or family should make use of the single most helpful work on the subject, George Grant's Bringing in the Sheaves, Transforming Poverty into Productivity. Atlanta, American Vision Press, 1985. This is a practical guide which can be used by any church or group no matter how limited its resources. It shows how to give truly compassionate help to those in need without creating a culture of dependence. George Grant has also provided supplementary materials for special projects and for youth groups. At the very least, bringing in the sheaves is required reading for action-oriented pastors and deacons. If you're tired of empty, socialistic, guilt-pity rhetoric about poverty, if you want to implement workable programs in your community, this is the book for you. Write American Vision, Post Office Box 
720-515, Atlanta, Georgia, 30328. On the other hand, if you do want more empty, socialistic, guilt and pity rhetoric, check the latest catalog from InterVarsity Press. Dr. Ronald J. Sider has probably just published another book. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.